I'm Tom Bartels from GrowFoodWell.com. And I am Darren Parmenter from Colorado State University in La Plata County. Welcome to another episode of The Garden Guys. We're here to help solve some problems. <laughs> says yeah, you. Create more problems. <laughs> um, but ours are garden related. Yes. Yeah. And, and plants and soil. Yeah, and, and food. Water, the basics. Yeah. Basic building blocks of life. Yeah. Yes. Today, being Saturday. Saturday. Is the first opening day of the Durango Farmer's Market. Yeah. So, unfortunately, if you're listening to us live, it's it's past noon, which means they're closed. (laughs) If you missed it this week because you forgot or it's early spring and they haven't had a market until today, keep that in your hat until next week. Because every Saturday from here on out, I believe. I think until the end of October. So, like, what is that, 26, 27 weeks? quite a while. So, it's one of our favorite haunts, and uh, it's a great place to go on Saturdays. And if you live out in Bayfield, there's going to be one out there. There's one in Cortez. One in Cortez, one in Mancus. They kind of all pop. Telluride's got one. Farmers Market. Farmington, Aztec. They're just great. They're fun. You just got to go get them. Yeah. And we at the uh, Durango Farmers Market, the Colorado Meister Gardeners, has a... A fine booth with all sorts of good information at it. So make sure you stop by there. And What about um, we jump right into the good news department? Whoa. Jumping right into the good news department? Well, we do have uh, a good news department okay. in the main building downstairs, downstairs as you're quite right. aware. In the uh, basement next to the boiler? Yeah. We just had a new um, report come across that... Did that come through fax or was uh, that... It was on a mimeograph. Oh, and nice. Okay. I did a copy of it and then brought it in. And we put it in the teletype, and now it's. You didn't attach it to the pigeon's foot, though. No, the pigeon was off today. Well, because of the avian flu, they were worried to bring the pigeons in on property. Freaking labor rules of pigeons these days drives me crazy. So, this is relating to rules, odd you would say that, but state of Colorado became the first state in the nation. It's the Right to Repair Act. Okay. And it relates to farmers in Colorado that used to have these combines and very fancy, complicated technological machinery that they couldn't fix themselves. Not that they didn't have the skills necessarily, but they weren't legally allowed to do so. So you have this combine breakdown in the middle of work on your big acreage, and it's electronic, and you got to call the company, and they have to have a special tech come out and put it on the diagnostic computer, put a bunch of key codes in. You're going to spend several thousand dollars. It's going to be down for several days waiting for the technician. That was the scene, and farmers got really frustrated with it. Well, it just became law that now you have the right to fix it yourself, and the manufacturers have to give you the tools, the diagnostics, the key codes. So if you choose to, you can fix it yourself, and it still won't ruin your warranty, and you can move on and continue your harvest. Okay. So I have a spade. Shovel. That's, yeah, as it relates to I've been gardeners, forever yeah. for the technician well, to come to fix find my out shovel. which one is the the business end of the shovel. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. still looking for the diagram. Well, and I couldn't find the end of the duct tape. Yeah, so I was like, <laughs> then you got to call the factory yeah. and so say, I've how do you waiting. start the duct tape? Yeah, the duct tape right. technician to come. <laughs> so for all you gardeners that have broken shovels like Darren, you have the right now to fix it yourself. I do. Yeah. Okay. So just keep that in mind. So if I have some baling wire, and screw some splints. You know, and yeah. some duct tape. Duct tape. Get all the tools. I probably still will break that shovel and have to buy a new one, but I have the right now. You have now. the right to fix it yourself. Okay. This week is a second good news story. I like to call this the uh, the BOGO. Have you heard that phrase? Buy one, get one free. Oh, Tom goes to Old Navy. Yeah. Well, they have that in grocery stores, <laughs> oh, too. Oh, they do. Yeah, okay. big time. BOGO. It's a BOGO Saturday BOGO for Saturday. the good news. For good news. The second story comes to us from fizz.org. 
which is all about science. And it's about bees. And we are all pretty aware of the bees and what kind of struggles they've had recently uh, with colony collapse disorder and some other mites and some pathogens that are kind of throwing the different bee populations for a loop. Uh, one of those pathogens is called C. bombi, and scientists at the University of Massachusetts Amherst have found that the pollen, the spiny pollen from plants within the sunflower family, both reduce the infection of the parasite pathogen bomb, C. bombi by 90% and increases the production of queen bumblebees at the same time. Isn't that interesting? So as a point of clarification, the C is the letter C period, Crithidia. Pretty impressive. That Asteraceae family, which is the sunflower family, is huge. Yeah, lots of plants. Yeah, so don't think that it's just sunflowers or things that look just like sunflowers. It is a really big family of plants that um, is really nice because their bloom period can be from kind of early spring, mid-spring, all the way through fall period. So... It's nice to see that this population of plants has that ability to assist this bee in, you know, resisting this parasite. Yeah. And what's interesting is another species within that family is dandelions. Oh. So it's I've seen one or two or yeah, they're they're up all over the place right now. And so it also the pollen in dandelions, being in the sunflower family, helps these bees in the same way. And what it does, interestingly enough, it's not the content of the metabolites inside the pollen molecule. It's actually the shell, the shape. They found this out in the experiments that the shape, the spiny shape of the outer shell of the pollen helps the bee resist this uh, pathogen in their gut. So it's almost like eating roughage or the shape of the structure of the outer shell of this pollen is what helps them. And it also is the same shape of the spiny pollen in dandelions. I continue to profess the beauty of the dandelion and all the powers it holds. And I cannot echo what Tom's saying enough in in terms of how valuable of a species this is. We had a study, I know CSU did a study a number of years ago, and uh, they they were able to trace the type of pollen that came back into the hives. And early season, it was almost entirely made up of dandelions and fruit trees. So those early season foragers, um, this is what they're going to find and go after. And so, again, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to take out a tree, but it's really easy to take out a dandelion. But there really is no point of doing it at this, at this juncture. Like, you're just, like, removing food from that system of one of our most important pollinators. And speaking of important pollinators, uh, interesting tidbit is all those insect pollinators that we rely on for food contributes upwards of $200 billion in annual ecosystem services worldwide. That's considerable. $200 billion worldwide is what pollinators in general help throughout the world. And uh, it's just another tidbit of showing how everything's connected and really of the small slice of understanding we have about how the biosphere works. Yeah. And then the biosphere of these bees in agriculture, which are typically brought in by hives, Mm -hmm. and then just our native bees. Bumblebees, all kinds of uh, carpenter bees, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, just our native bee population to me is still, there's not a whole lot of understanding about how they interact socially uh, or environmentally. And it's pretty impressive. 
So is our good news department. That's it. If you didn't think this was good news, yeah, then we apologize. <laughs> Send us your Not own recommended story. for children under 12. <laughs> um, so next off, we're going to talk about what's happening right now uh, in spring with a lot of gardeners that might be purchasing seedlings in some of the garden centers around the area. Yeah, this is the taking the risk two-week period, right? It's the... Uh, Kind of the middle of May until that comfort zone of the end of May, first part of June, where people are going to roll the dice and plant something that may or may not work <laughs> in the middle. There is, <laughs> and you know, kind of what we typically will see in terms of transplants this time of year are peppers, eggplants, and the diva, tomato. Yes, the mistress of the garden, tomato. Yes. And so, for those of you that have purchased some of these seedlings. We've harped on this before. Best to be lazy in the spring. Don't be the first one on your block to put all your new seedlings out there right before the late freeze. Now, that being said, you could do it and luck out and then say, oh, I planted on the 12th and I was fine. Sure. I get it. Yeah, you could let everything ride in blackjack and maybe you'll luck out. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some skilled gardeners who I know are going to be putting stuff out on that weekend. And it's, we always, you know, we talk about Mother's Day and Memorial Day. I used to always tell people plant around Memorial Day or after. Mm -hmm. Now it's kind of the Mother's Day or after. And it doesn't really make sense to me. But that said, these last couple of years, we haven't had really hard frosts or freezes um, after the second week of May. So... Mm -hmm. If you feel like you could protect your plants um, in case a big freeze does come, then then go for it. I may wait another week or two and just, you know, hedge my bets on the back end of the season as opposed to the front end of the season. Yeah. And maybe I just don't have everything ready to go yet. So and I'm a procrastinate gardening. You're procrastinating planting. Well, I'm procrastinating gardening in general. Oh, I see where you're going. It's yeah. a much wider concept. Yeah. Yep. So those people that have purchased... Uh, seedlings or have them under lights and they're tired of having them in the house and they want to just go plant them out. The first big mistake, and even if we just save one person from doing this, uh, it's worth it. You want to make sure you harden them off. Please. So you don't just throw them out some morning when the sun comes out and yay, and then by noon they're dead because they've not used to, they've never seen direct sunlight. No, never. And, yeah, and now you just throw them out and this hydrogen furnace goes zip. Just blast them and if they make it through those first couple hours yeah we're not even thinking about that first night right which has a good chance to being 30s low 40s it's going to be a shock i guarantee you if you buy your plant from a local nursery even the farmer's market home improvement store they are all coming from a greenhouse somewhere they've been pampered until you purchase yes right so you're essentially going from What's the now? It's like like a spa. Like these tomatoes have been in the spa for a couple of weeks, just loving life. Like little cucumbers on their eyes and getting back <laughs> rubs, which is what you're doing. And then throwing them in a cold pool. Right after they threw them in a really hot hot tub, all those stomates are going to be open. It's thinking it's downstairs in the basement under some lights, and then it's 85 degrees or 80 degrees, yeah. 6,500 feet in elevation. Blast furnace. It is. A little bit of a wind and then a cold night. So how do we harden these plants off? Well, initially, you're going to take your flats um, or whatever container they're in. Make sure they're well watered. 
bring them into a bounced sunlight area at first just to test them out because they're going to get the bounced light from sun, which they probably haven't seen yet, and it's going to soften that blow when they start doing photosynthesis using the real sun. Then the second day, you might put them out in the direct sun for an hour or two and keep yeah. an eye on them. They will have a standard wilt reflex, and that's normal. But just as soon as they start wilting, get them out of the sun put them in the shade. If it's still really hot, just bring them inside again. But you can typically get away with putting them in the shade, make sure they have enough water. That's the biggest crisis they'll get into if they run out of water because they're processing this all at once and they're just trying to adjust and avoid plant shock, which is what you want to avoid as well. Right. If, if, if you want to time this so you're not moving 20 trays in and out or 20 plants, just stagger your planting. Right. Right. So you don't have to move them all the exact same period. Like you can like start to interchange like, oh, this whole batch is going to be going out this week. And then I'm going to do another planting the next week. So I'll Mm -hmm. harden those off the next week. I am all about staggering those plantings if you're planting multiple plants. I have another quick tip in that regard. Every year I have 14 trays of seedlings, more or less, 13 to 15. I have built using two two by eights. The story is not going to surprise anybody who listens to the garden guys or knows Tom. That accommodates 14 trays. So they're two long two by eights that uh, it's like a long H. There's a cross member on the top, cross member on the bottom, holding these two boards parallel and wide enough to accommodate a sideways seedling tray. So I have 14 of those lined out. And I just hook a cam strap, like a boating strap along one side. I leave my car out of the garage. So you need right. a garage for this or a shaded area. Yeah. And you make sure that it's not freezing at night. And you just bring them out in the sun. You drag the whole 14 trays out. It takes about 30 seconds. Leave them outside in the sun for any stage of that hardening off process. Maybe it's an hour. Maybe it's six hours, whatever. And all you do is take the other end, drag it back into the garage, 30 seconds. You, know, you don't have to carry any trays. It takes, the whole thing takes one minute, half minute in, half minute out. How many two by eights do you have? One, two, two, by, two, yeah. two by eights. So I just spread them like a ceiling tray is about a what a foot and a half, maybe two feet wide. So I have the two by sixes or two by eights or whatever long boards you have because these boards are 12 feet long or whatever right. it's going to be. So you just figure out how long, how many trays after you line them up side by side you're going to need to just sit on those boards. And it's just basically a, a transfer mechanism to slide them out into the driveway and leave them in the sun, slide them back in the garage. That's brilliant. It makes it a lot easier. Yeah. I, I used to carry, I used like you said, I used to carry 14 trays, one, sometimes two at a time, but I dropped one once and I just never want to do that yeah. again. So I take them out one at a time. That's 14 trips back and forth. You know, it's just crazy. So if you have a <laughs> bunch of trays, put them on a long board, put them in your garage, slide them in, slide them out. Beautiful. Yeah. So if I get this tomato, it's yeah. hardened off. It's ready to go outside. I'm going to try to plant this plant, you know, in the best location. In an ideal world, you don't plant that tomato in the same place you planted tomatoes the last three or four years, which is what I do. <laughs> but I want to plant that tomato right at the soil level. How do you, how do you, because yours are a little bit smaller yeah. than what I would plant. Yeah. So I, do you just go right at the soil level and call it good? Uh, with the soil blocks, I yeah. do. If I had a bigger, like a foot tall, if I purchased a seedling, typically the tomato plants are going to be farther along than what I'm growing here in the soil blocks. So if you get one of those eight to 10 or a foot tall and it's bushy already, 
you want to clip off the lower limbs. Just snip them off with your thumb and your forefinger. Yep. Just crimp them all the way up to the top three or four branches that are leafing out at the top. It's going to look like you just gave it a really bad haircut. Yeah. It's like and a Dr. Seuss, like truffle tree yeah. type looking and thing. So, yeah. And then you're going to bury that whole plant. So it might be a f- almost a foot deep. And then this little tufted two or three branches from the top are all that's above the ground. So you turn that one foot tall transplant into one that's about four inches tall. And we do this because all of those stems or branches that Tom just picked off, they're all, tomatoes one of these plants that does adventitious rooting. So if I take a leaf and I remove it, and then I remove light from the equation, it'll turn into a rooting node mm-hmm. as opposed to a leaf node. Right. So it's what we call this adventitious rooting. So by the mechanism that Tom had just described, we are increasing our rooting zone by upwards of another foot. Yeah. And for a plant that, you know, is moving a ton of water and nutrients and has a ton of, you know, fruiting bodies that act as sinks, the more roots that can access more water and more nutrients, the better for that plant. The second reason you bury a tomato plant in a transplant situation deeply is it most likely has not been growing in a windy environment. And what tomatoes will do, most stocky, taller plants are, that are growing in the wind will generate more cellulose or lignin in their main stem to accommodate the wind. And so what happens is when people take a big tomato transplant and they plant it shallow, it tends to be really weak and leggy. And so the wind comes up inevitably, as it will in May, and knocks these plants over right. or crimps it or damages it in some way that was unnecessary if you plant it deeper. And then as it grows out in the natural buffeting winds of nature, it will make its own stabilization in the stem and it'll be fine. But you got to make sure you're not planting these tall, leggy uh, tomato plants. Which is, you know, it's interesting that same concept we kind of promote in trees. You know, everybody wants to stake trees. Like, oh, I just got to stake the tree to give it support. Right. We don't actually, unless you're in a really, really windy place, that movement of the tree, of the, of you know, the primary tree trunk, it makes it stronger. That wind is going to strengthen that tree trunk. If you're bracing it and supporting it, you're not allowing that tree to produce those same, I'm assuming probably those same properties, yeah. so that it could actually stay stronger when a wind really does come. Yeah. Plant it deep. Plant it late. And you'll avoid transplant shock and everybody will be happy. Boom. Now, that process never really needs to happen for perennial veggies, does it? Because yeah. they, they grow back every year. They do. They're on their own. Yeah. They're already out there dealing with the the uh, rigors of all the environmental hassles they have to deal with. I, I love perennial vegetables. I, I love them. The whole list of them? Yeah. Um, <laughs> asparagus? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start with A. We'll a, go from start, there. Start with the A's. Yeah, I'm going to start with asparagus. Asparagus. Okay. Uh, I'll go to R. How about <laughs> rhubarb? <laughs> Was I'm there anything in between? Not, not that I can think of. <laughs> How about walking onions? They're perennial. I get, yeah, yeah, okay. They're, they're well, tiny little can, soup onions. We but... can make these arguments for lots of things, right? Yeah. Rosemary. I guess that comes after rhubarb. That's a, well, that's an herb. I know. But yeah, so it's like, yes, I... We kind of were sitting here stewing over other perennial vegetables. If there were a lot of them, we'd both be growing. Yeah, we would have two shows on them too. Yeah, like we. But, this would you know, fill I'm up sure two there shows. Are, there are some obscure ones, and one we're probably forgetting. But yeah, um, and at this point, asparagus, 
You guys are probably, if you do have asparagus, good on you. That's awesome. We are probably coming close to the end of the asparagus season, just based off of wherever you live and then, you know, how impressive those asparagus plants are. Asparagus is one of those plants that takes a while to get going. It, it requires a fair amount of water and it requires some prep in that first couple of years. So it's a really long waiting game, which is very different than any of our other vegetable crops where we have to, you know, we plant and harvest same year. Asparagus is like you plant one year and then you're not really harvesting until year three. And then once you start getting spears, the spears will come up and you just snap them off it there. It's an easy harvest plant. Right, it is. You don't have to like weed through leaf material or, you know, thorns or anything. It's pretty simple. Once those, you know, the spears start being pretty consistently smaller than the size of a pencil, stop pruning. Like that plant is done. You've extracted enough of the nutrients and the carbohydrates from it. So now it's time for that plant to go back into that, essentially the vegetative stage, produce those big ferns, and then that'll start to get those carbohydrates loaded up for the next season. So it's a, it's an arduous process. So now onto rhubarb, the R perennial crop. I don't like rhubarb. I'm not really a big fan. I'm from Wisconsin. They had rhubarb pie when I was growing up, but I just never acquired the taste for it. It's not uncommon down here in Southwest Colorado. If you move into a house, it's, you know, at least 40, 50 years old. There's probably a token rhubarb plant on the property that someone grew at some point. And it's still there. It's still growing. Yeah. They're amazing. But they're actually, you know, ornamentally, they're pretty. Yeah. So if you want to leave an ornamental bed, great. But if it's taking up space in your veggie bed, you know, ask yourself, do I really want the rhubarb strawberry pie? Or do I just want to buy a piece at a local bakery? I don't know. Or do you want to have some annuals there and harden them off every year? Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's that's our piece on perennial vegetables. Yeah. So speaking of perennials, <laughs> um, let's jump into herbs. Perennial herbs uh, that do really well here. Rosemary, tarragon, oregano, thyme, chives. I now, like you've chives overwintered like, all of those. All successfully for many, many years. Okay. You just dump a bunch of leaves on it, like a couple feet of leaves, and they do fine. And that is, I mean, Tom just hit the key right there, like insulate over the winter yeah like rosemary is a push uh-huh tarragon's a push sure times they do fine oregano's they do fine they'll look like crap right now because they've yep. been smashed down by snow snow and leaves but and they'll start to pop up but yeah like giving it that blanket in the fall is gonna be key and i don't really cook oh, that's it I, I really, I don't just really don't. cook yeah. <laughs> that's Beth. Beth is the amazing chef in our house. Um, but we don't use a lot of tarragon. Uh-huh. We don't use a lot of rosemary. Oh, I use tons of rosemary. I know. We've talked about that before. I know. But again, here we go back to this. Like, I'm not going to grow rosemary. Because, yeah, if you're not going to eat I it. don't th- use it. Don't bother. Yes. Yeah. Now, we will grow the like, heck out of a cilantro. I wouldn't wear, you know, that sweater you've got on. <laughs> Looks good on you, though. <laughs> That's a little <laughs> passive aggressive, but that's okay. That's fine. No, we each have our own individual taste. So same goes with your garden. You've got to plant the herbs, the flowers, the vegetables that you actually eat. Like we were just saying, I'm not going to bother with rhubarb because I would yeah. probably never eat it. Yeah. And yeah. if there's something you don't like, you, you take it, you know, and you share it. Or in the case of my sweater, I'll be going to the thrift store later and taking my sweater to the thrift store. Because you could get at least three, four bucks for that. <laughs> Apparently, it's ugly in Tom's eyes <laughs> or doesn't fit my body shape very well. Well, it one is of the performing a function. That's more important. So one of the key pet peeves I have with 
herbs when I see people do this is they mix their annuals oh, with a perennial I see where herb. You're going. That's awful. So and then when they say, Oh, I'm coming in to amend this bed and I have to harvest all these carrots or potatoes around my rosemary, it's like, wait, wait, wait. You're you've got a perennial plant in the middle of your annual bed and it's gonna be a big hassle. It is to work around that. So do you have, I'm assuming then you're, do you have an herb garden? Oh yeah, we dedicate. I just used air quotes. You have like, you have an herb garden. Absolutely. Okay. And so just for the perennial herbs that you really should handle differently than any annual plant, because they're going to be more uh, kind of reactive to a fungal dominant soil than a bacterial dominant one that the annuals like more. So that's the kind of thing I'd leave it alone because you're not going to be messing with that soil. You're just going to be adding amendments every year, insulating it in the winter, like Darren just said. But all of your annuals, as you turn over and harvest and move and amend the soils, you're going to be messing with the soil. Even if you're doing no dig, you're going to be in that soil that's uh, not going to be making the perennial happy. Right. So just separate it a little bit, put a permanent perennial herb bed, and then your annual herbs, your dill or basil or whatever you're doing annually, they can handle being moved because they've only got an annual life cycle. And I would recommend if you're going to do that perennial herb bed is to make it in ground. This isn't a container above ground. It's not the trough. It's not the fancy little planter. Just because of that amazing insulative value of the soil itself, um, is going to help that perennial overwinter here. A lot of times people will try to overwinter plants in above ground containers and they don't realize that that then those that root system is then kind of at the will of, of mother nature. So if it gets to be 10 below, that's what those roots will be at. You know, if those roots were underground, it wouldn't want to be where close to 10 below. So anytime you put a thing in a container, try to overwinter your, if you're going to overwinter, keep it in the ground. And I think from, I always like to jump to the lazy side of the equation because people forget. And if it's too much work, they won't do it. So if you can design it for laziness, then it works better. And growing in containers can work in this environment. But in June, July, you got to be on it. You got to make sure that water is there because it'll get so hot in containers, especially dark ones or metallic ones that are unprotected. Um, the sun is just going to bake it. So it can be done, but it takes a little bit more attention and labor to focus on the health of those plants. Yeah, good points. With all this work that we're talking about, why bother? No, well, why bother gardening in the first place, really? Why bother gardening in the first place? Yeah, what does well, it do for you? What, well, why, it pays why would my you... paycheck every month. <laughs> <laughs> so there's utility. I like that. Okay. Even the fact that I'm not growing my own transplants, I'm still getting ready to garden. You know, this weekend I'll be trying to maybe put out some plants. Got some onions that have to go out. I'm going to put out some peas. That makes me excited. That takes my mind off of everything else that's happening in the in my world, in the bigger world, with kids, with fam, whatever it looks like. I'm able to take that moment and escape. So I'm so glad that we're going to try to grow something this year because for me to be outside and to feel soil and I think about transplanting tomatoes and like when your hands get green, like your fingertips are green and they just, for days, your hands smell like tomatoes. It's the best thing for me. So it brings me joy. And for me, if it brings you joy, that has got to be one of the top reasons why I garden. I'm right with you there, buddy. It's a pretty amazing, immersive experience when you get lost in growing food for me specifically. Uh, that process is a 10,000-year-old habit, and it brings 
connectivity to history, to people working the, the land and how that started, how it started civilization, and this connection with the, the ecosphere in a larger sense, understanding how those cycles work and how you're a part of it. You're orchestrating that process from the seed on through the harvest, et cetera, that becomes your cell structure the following year. And as you eat this food, you're just in the middle of that cycle. It's an amazing process to be you know immersed in. And people that do it can relate to that. People that are listening right now know, yeah, yeah, that's why I garden. It's this connection yeah. to the planet. You know, it's amazing. Right, so you figured out this holistic component of the garden space, and what you ate in the fall last year goes into a compost, or it gets processed by worms, which then goes back into the garden and grows the food that you ate this spring and summer, and that cycle just continues. And it well, becomes cells in my heart, or yeah. skin, or my eyeballs. It just becomes me. Right. Right. So it's fascinating. It is pretty. And I can see why that is. You've kind of closed that loop. And that's what a lot of us probably strive to get to a point where we can really start reducing the amount that comes into our life. The key to happiness is to lower your expectations. That's okay. Don't beat yourself up. Oh, I had this. I had to buy amendment, whatever. Yeah. 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 And if you're not even a gardener and you listen to the show, doesn't like go to the farmer's market yes we're not here to convert you it's the same vibe yeah right you can get it in different ways yeah we're not expecting you to get up and do some crazy dance all of a sudden when we (laughs) mention compost right like whoa look what i got and speaking crazy languages that's not what we're after we're just hopefully going to fill you with a little piece that makes you maybe want to try it inspire yeah or go you know investigate it maybe go to the farmer's market talk to a farmer well in that regard uh get out there Try some gardening. If you have a neighbor who's gardening, help them. If you want to meet some gardeners and farmers, go to the farmer's market. Yeah, or plant one tomato and just smell your hands. It's the (laughs) best thing ever. Just remember, you get what you get. We'll see you next week.